HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and me, Bobby Comforto. Hi. Hi, Mom. Hi, Saz. How are you? You know what? I'm well. I'm really good. I had a surprise visit last night from one of my closest friends who lives up at Kingston, and she came down, and we had a nice night and a beautiful morning, and uh, you know, I am very fixed in my routine. My routine often involves getting up, going for a run, and, you know, getting a coffee, coming home, eating a grapefruit, and that's my my whole routine. And it was really nice to have a friend and to do something, I don't know, just starting the morning off different. It was, like, really lovely, actually. It felt special, nice. like a vacation nice. or something. What about you? What's your day looking like? I'm going to kind of start my day. I started my... Uh... Rob, my husband, woke up very early this morning to go to the city because it yeah. takes about two and a half hours on an early morning. So I was up early and working, and so I'm going to work for some of the day and then get some exercise and get outside and take the dog out. And And tomorrow we're going to meet at the Botanical Gardens, which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, that's going to be fun. The Bronx Botanical Gardens, I've not been mm-hmm. before, but I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to it because um, we, we record these shows a week early uh we will actually be celebrating mother's day together this weekend and i hope that you've all tuned into our mother's day show last week for you guys and uh but yeah we're gonna do a little mother's day thing at the botanical gardens bobby do you have a favorite flower yes what is it i think that mother's day always reminds it's not my favorite flower but it mother's day always reminds me of lilacs and i just love the smell of them i love it they smell great. I have a bunch so, in my house right now. My house is full of lilacs. Mmm, wonderful. And they do smell nice, and they're beautiful, and they really last. And actually, I heard a tip with lilacs, just since this is now a flower podcast. But um, some of my uh, the local person at the Martinez uh, grocery store, which has the most gorgeous flowers outside, it's on Court Street and president if you, if anyone's in the carol gardens area and needs gorgeous flowers and plants please go there but um that you should kind of chop up the stem of the lilac they have these thick woody stems and if you smash the stalks a bit before you put mm-hmm. them in water they last oh. longer oh good tip yeah really good tip. well this was a wonderful episode it was um, your idea to explore this book and i i so appreciated it because it felt like a real deep dive um, I think any time we have our, each time we have our, our podcasts, I, I always try to deep dive into what the subject is. And I really appreciate that. It's just an opportunity to to maybe do something I wouldn't have done. Yeah. So today on the show, we're talking treat. about the Joan Didion book, A Year of Magical Thinking. And uh, it's a kind of just one of those books that a lot of people, I'm sure if you've gone through a grieving experience uh, and a loss, that it's very likely that someone has given you this book. It's very likely if you're listening to the show that you've read this book and probably given it to someone else. And um, we talk about all the reasons why it's an interesting book and a beautiful book. And uh, I, yeah, a really a great, a great read. I re-listened to it this week in like one day. It's actually quite a quick, it's a quick read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a five-hour audiobook. It's I don't remember how many pages the actual book is, three hundred or something maybe. But it's it's really useful. It's great. And even if you haven't had a really significant grief experience, 
still recommend reading it. It's really wonderful. And as well as all of Joan Didion's other books, both fiction and nonfiction, short stories. She's wonderful essays, columns. She's an amazing woman. And there's a great documentary on her that her uh, nephew Griffin Dunn uh, did. I believe it's on Netflix now and it's really worth watching because her life is exquisite and interesting and she's a really fascinating person and beautiful writer. Good to know. Yeah. Well, we're all on this crazy ride together. Here I use the word crazy, which we will discuss <laughs> in the podcast, but we're all yeah. on this, a this wild unbelievable ride. wild ride together. So. Yeah, we are. All right, everyone. Well, uh, enjoy the spring. It's as we talk about in the beginning of the show. It's a gorgeous, sunny day here in the Northeast, and I hope that you are all enjoying it. And if you're not, that's okay, too, and we're sending you a big hug. And uh, enjoy the show. Love you, Bobby. Have a great Friday. Love you. Bye. Bye. So, Bobby, hello. How's it going today? Everything is good. It's a beautiful day out there. It is a beautiful day here in the Northeast of the United States. Um, so today we don't have a guest and we are talking about uh, a book that I feel like when people are newly in grief, this is so often recommended, perhaps we could say as like the most recommended book for anyone who's newly experienced a grief situation, A Year of Magical Thinking uh, by Ms. Joan Didion, um, and such an incredible writer. Jo- Joan Didion is one of my favorite writers ever before this. And, you know, this is a, a book that's, uh, it's very Joan Didion in the way that it's written, but it's also like, you know, new train for her that she wrote after experiencing the loss of her husband and the illness of her daughter, who, uh, after the book was completed, ended up passing away as well. Um, right. She actually yeah, said in the book, she said that, she said in the book it was her way of kind of making sense of what had happened for her. And um, it wasn't that she wanted to be fixed on any particular idea. She wanted to flow back and forth in time. And Right. Um, well, we're grateful for the fact that, that Joan wrote this book because, you know, it's not just one of those things like, oh, you got to read this. There's some kind of answer. You know, it's this. I don't want to throw shade at the secret or anything like that. But, you know, there's no there is no secret in it. It's just a very mm-hmm. honest um interpretation of what her grief felt like and i think it's very relatable and it ha- it has a universal appeal and rawness and honesty and as we're going to discuss you know throughout the episode describing what magical thinking is in relation to the grief process and uh the pros and cons of it but you know one of the things that i love about Joan Didion's writing um is that she has um, a way of using repetition of like really strong lines or phrases that to like throughout to tie the whole narrative together and the way this book starts and uh, she repeats it in many different ways throughout the book is the quote life changes fast life changes in the instant the ordinary instant you sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends and it's such you know uh it's just such a real way of describing what it's like when, you know, grief is upon you. And it's even, even like, I mean, what happened with her husband, uh, John Gregory Dunn, who was also an incredible writer. Um, he had a heart attack and died instantly. But even for people who are, you're anticipating the loss, it still changes in that instant, you know? It's- but just to remind, to remind um, the listeners that her husband died while they were sitting at the table having dinner, yeah, the dinner in their table. apartment. Yeah. Yeah. And at yeah. the same time that that was going on, their daughter, their adult daughter, had um, fallen unconscious and was in intensive care in a hospital up the street. Yeah, well, Quintana Roo uh, had um, gotten the flu and had complications from the flu. And yeah. then she got pneumonia and became unconscious and was in the hospital, which is actually, that actually happened to a friend of mine, a perfectly healthy friend. Mm-hmm. Had a similar situation. It's scary. You can kind of just... But the ordinary instant, and you're right, she repeats that many times, and I think that such powerful words. The ordinary instant. I thought it was interesting. I read one section where she said, this book is my attempt to make sense of the period 
that followed, weeks and then months, that cut loose any fixed idea I ever had about death, about illness, about probability and luck, about good fortune and bad, about marriage and children and memory, about grief, about the ways in which people do and do not deal with the fact that life ends, about the shallowness of sanity, and about life itself. Mm. Yeah. So one thing when we're talking, you know, because we try to find the intersection of food and grief in this book, and, you know, not that we have to harp on that too much in this episode, but there is a, like, Joan, you know, in her writing, right, I mean, she's such a beautiful writer, it's so descriptive, but she often uses, like, food as, and not that she's a big foodie or even a big eater, she's right. such a small right. woman. <laughs> but um, in this book, you know, the the connection I found with food is really that she's using it as such a trail marker in these memories and a life that she spent with her husband and the time, you know, this, this was the summer that we would swim in the pool and then we would, you know, eat lunch and then we would work and then we would go to Morton's and we would have chicken quesadillas and black beans. And it was, you know, she does that a lot as like the, the marker because essentially when it's, all said and done, our life is a collection of memories and they are identified by the different senses. What did it smell like when I was there? What did it taste like? Was it warm or was it cold? You know, and, and food and taste is such a significant way to like kind of mark time. And even if you forget a whole day, you might Oof, remember right. the, the food That's memory. So good. That's such a good point. From then, from then, and she uses it as a tool often to kind of set the tone for what was happening at different points in their life. You know, I made a lunch uh, and I, I cooked like baked chicken or I we had guests over and we had this to drink by the fire. And she really uses these kinds of like luscious sensory memories. You know, she talks about that every morning when Quintana, after her husband died, when Quintana had her second health issue and uh, was in uh, in Los Angeles in the hospital, how she was staying at the ho- the Beverly Wilshire, I think. And she got huevos rancheros with one scrambled egg every morning. And that was part of her process of being able to set up some kind of routine for herself. You right, know what exactly. I mean? It was right. important for her to have that huevos rancheros with one scrambled egg every morning. And I don't know, I just think it's a beautiful way of, um, you know, a tool that many writers use and also many screenwriters and directors and people who are making films is to use food in their work to help uh, humanize the work. And I think and concretize. Yeah. Right. Does a beautiful job of that in this book because otherwise mm. it can just feel like words, but when you tie it to things that are similar and people all understand. But I agree with you. She wasn't really a foodie. So when she describes the food, it's, you don't feel this lusciousness or anything. It feels like ordinary moments. Mm. Right? Wouldn't you say these are her ordinary moments? This is what they're filled with. Yeah, I mean, totally. Yeah. yeah. But like, so, yeah. So she talks about, you know, the ordinary nature of everything. What do you think about that quote, Zara? Do you, do you want to read it or should I, the one about um, the ordinary nature of everything? I Go for it. Okay. <laughs> it was, in fact, the ordinary nature of everything preceding the event that prevented me from truly believing it had happened, absorbing it, incorporating it, getting past it. I recognize now that there was nothing unusual in this. Confronted with sudden disaster, we all focus on how unremarkable the circumstances were in which the unthinkable occurred. The clear blue sky from which the plane fell, the routine errand that ended up on the shoulder with a car in flames, the swings where the children were playing, as usual, when the rattlesnake struck. He was on his way home from work, happy, successful, healthy, and then gone. Mm. Yeah. And in that, that particular part, she continues to talk about 9-11, and I think all of us remember the ordinary day. It was just an ordinary day, and then the, the you know, everything just cracked open. Totally. Well, Joan also has a really beautiful way of using her background as, you know, a journalist and not necessarily just a, a writer of fiction and nonfiction, but like a a real journalist of like using a lot of kind of facts and she collects a lot of facts for this book. And, you know, she, she took out some kind of, uh, section of news clippings about what, how they described the day on 9-11, which makes it, you know, just interesting to read, but yeah. Right. She said it was just an ordinary, beautiful September day. 
People stay, still say when asked to describe the morning in New York when American Airlines 11 and United Airlines 175 got flown into the World Trade Towers. And she even talks about other um, things that happened in history, right, where it was just an ordinary day. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, one thing, she kept repeating things. So I just wanted to say one more thing that, that about this, about the ordinary. She said, mm-hmm. and then, gone, in the midst of life, we are in death. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that uh, she was surprised by her own reaction to grief, you know, mm-hmm. I think. And it's, it's interesting because the um, the Dunn family, the, her husband was John Gregory Dunn, and the Dunn side of the family had experienced a lot of traumatic losses. Mm. And, you know, so she wasn't necessarily a stranger to sudden loss. Um, uh but it, nonetheless, I think when it was her husband and her most, you know, the person who mm. she was most closely tied to, and then her daughter, of course, being so sick at the same time, it hit her in yeah. a different way, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Concurrent crises make everything even crazier, right? Right. And I think maybe mm. even because of the fact that she had had, you know, losses in her life, maybe maybe that was, I mean, I don't want to speak for her, but uh, perhaps that is even more of the reason why she seemed to be surprised by her own reaction. Like, oh, you know, and I think a lot mm-hmm. of us can think that. Like, oh, I've been through something like this before. But when it hits, you know, when it's your person or your your husband or your child or, I mean, anyone really, but it can hit you in just a way that surprises you. And I think that is why, in a way, she was prompted to write this book because of her reaction to grief, you know? Yes. And magical thinking is such an interesting kind of concept and we hear it a lot as you know can be a negative like oh, I try to veer away from magical thinking or one should veer away from magical thinking or magical thinking can be detrimental to the healing process I think that one thing that I think is really cool about this book and why I recommend it to people who I know who have had any kind of loss experience is that it's basically really saying that like these these stages these are it's okay it's it's protective in a way to think magically and we all do it and not that you should or shouldn't there's no judgment really in it it's a beautiful observation of something that happens to a lot of us you know and I think one of the first kind of uh kind of magical thinking experiences that she has is just surrounding like being able to change the actual event right mm-hmm. when Beth had mentioned this Beth Robbins a couple of weeks ago and she came on talking about uh if she didn't open the door for the police right. officers like nothing could have happened and you know Joan Didion talks about it in the book as uh she wanted an autopsy for her husband because she was in her mind thinking that if they did an autopsy they could have just found something that could have been easily corrected Right. right. Like, exactly. oh, I yep. could correct this. And like, that is, you know, when you stop and think about, oh, what am I thinking? Like, this is this is wild. Well, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross called it bargaining. And in a way, mm-hmm. it's a similar thing. It's really um, wanting to shift time, wanting to feel like you have this control or power over the outcome of things. Mm-hmm. And um, what I thought was interesting, the magical thinking fit right in with what she told, talked about as grief being a state of temporary insanity. And I think Mm. she said this was part of it. And I think what I heard her saying is that there's so much going on in your head, as well as your heart, when you're grieving, that it's almost crazy-making. You can't believe the amounts of kinds of thoughts and the things you're thinking. And when she was able to look at it again, like you say, she looked back and said, I can't believe I went through this. I can't believe that I'm feeling these things. So she talked about delusions in a way, and they made her think that, um, you know, uh, in other words, if she didn't throw away his shoes, I thought there was a beautiful section. We'll, we'll read that. Um, she said, We might expect that we will be prostrate, inconsolable, crazy with loss. We do not expect to be literally crazy. Cool customers who believe their husband is about to return and needs his shoes. Because she talked about how when um, her friends asked her to start cleaning out the apartment, and she could do everything with the shoes. And when she got to the shoes, she said, No, but he's going to need them. Mm. And that's when she realized that she was having like this d- kind of delusions that he was going to come back, this magical thinking. And then she started to think that she could have done something in the past. You know, and many, many people do this. You have no idea how often people go over the circumstances. If only I had done this, if I only had done that. And in a way, it's you're right. It's a way of keeping the reality from being present. You know, yeah. if they can go back and fix it and change it, then then it wouldn't have happened. As a mental health professional who deals often with people who are very deep in in the in, in all stages of the grieving 
you know, their grief journey. What do you, what do you think when somebody comes to you and they're having magical thinking? What is your interpretation of that? And what is your advice to them? Are you supportive of it, of living in that state? Do you, is it your goal to get them to move through it? Like how, how do you process uh, patients dealing with this type of thinking? Well, Zara, it reminds me of my turtle principle, you know, what I always talk about. And it reminds me that when we need to, we have to pull our turtle shell up. And that's the best we can do. And when we're ready, we stick our neck out. Mm. So I feel that the magical thinking is, is the coping mechanism. It's the way to protect themselves. And absolutely, they're not ready to stick their neck out yet. So, yeah. you know, I always think of, we've talked about this before on the show, actually. One of my, our favorite movies was called Under the Sand with Charlotte Rampling. Mm-hmm. And I think it was done in the eighties or something like that. And it's a story of a woman I've never who's seen it. Oh, no, really. So I've told you about it though. Mm-hmm. Um, so this woman is um, vacationing with her husband, and they go to the beach. They've always done that, and um, she's lying down. It's so luxurious in the sun, and she says, "Can you please put some lotion on me?" He puts it on. She falls asleep, and when she wakes up, he's gone. He disappeared. So she has absolutely no what happened. Absolutely no idea what happens. So she continues for the next year to speak of him as if he's still there. With her friends, she talks about him as if he's home. When she's home, she makes dinner for him. She makes sets a plate for him. She sits down and talks to him, and she behaves as if he's alive. Mm. And I think the power of that movie is that it reminds you that's what she needs to do for that period of time. And when she's ready to let go, she lets go. Mm. So to answer your question, many, many people go through this in all different ways you know um joan didion talks about it how often she wanted to call john you know i'll call him i'll tell him what happened because they were so interconnected in their lives and she always told him everything so what do you what do you suggest for a client who might have that who comes you know the average person who comes to you saying they have that instinct do you recommend that they do call or write a letter or like i mean is there an exercise absolutely you follow through you know, so much of grief is imaginal, right? It's done in your imagination. A lot mm. of grief is done in your imagination. I often call it time traveling. Mm. We're going to talk about that later. You know, you, you travel from periods of time when you first met each other into, or when you were, when a child is born or when, a, when you first remember a parent and you travel back and forth and then you travel into the future. You travel into the future and imagine they're not going to be there for that future. And then you're in the present and you feel them in the room. And so there's a lot of time traveling. And I think it's just part of how we have to do. What I loved about Joan Didion's book is she tells you how unbelievably intense this is. And it gives you permission for it to be as intense as it is. And it's not just the feelings. Like we've talked about the depth of feeling. And you talk about going under the sea. I often repeat that, by the way, to clients because I just Mm -hmm. love the way you say that. And to me, that's the feeling part. But this is what kind of what the imagination is doing. Like she Mm -hmm. has a rich imagination. And she talks a lot about how our imagination, how deep that goes and how intense that is. So I think the magical thinking, that's what it is. One of the things that strikes me about this book is the, I've made the correlation, I guess, after reading this as to the way that like any emotion can, like the way that falling in love for real can surprise you. You know what I mean? And even having experienced maybe things that are close to it in the past like for instance we were just talking about how like Joan Didion had lost family members and kind of traumatic situations before like maybe things have come closer when you fall in love it's shocking and it knocks you on your ass right and it's like we and with with good reason because grief is a painful place to be in and love in its best newest form is often a happy place to be in and that's putting that's painting the in a very binary type of way but um you know, we're kind of taught to think love, good, grief, bad, right? So when grief comes, it's this shocking feeling. It's also something we don't talk a lot about, but it's also in the same way that falling in love for the first time is so educational and so interesting, you know, and it's, it's very rich. (laughs) It's very rich. rich. And you know, it's often so painful that it's easy to miss the richness in it. But I do think one of the great things about this book, and also I like to recommend it to people is because I think it highlights that. I think it highlights the, the opportunities that you have in grief to like, and and it shifts you and it changes you and it robs you of something that you will never get back, which is a person that you loved and you will never have that again. And your life is forever changed in the ordinary instant. But, you know, 
there's so much within within that um and even even if just uh the power of your memory and of reliving experiences that in some way might have been gone forever power you know, of imagination exactly well, well not imagination but of memory of actual yeah. real memory uh, because, you know, maybe these are memories that you tuck away in a file and we would have never taken them out again. And and if you kind of go down that path, is it like, well, then maybe those times almost even never happened if you don't ever reference yes. them again. You know, so maybe in the grieving process, uh, even the opportunity to get to reaccess these memories is like Absolutely. A, in a strange way, uh, some type of, I don't want to say gift, but some type of. I don't know. Interesting finding. That's beautiful. Um, the reason why I said imagination is because I often think of our mind as a screen, as a movie screen, mm-hmm. and what's projected on it. So memories are projected on that screen, too. So I think yeah. that's why I said imagination. So here's an interesting thing that she said. I, I like this very much. She said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. We look for the sermon and the suicide, for the social and moral lesson in the murder. We interpret what we see select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely, especially if we are a writer, by the impositions of a narrative line upon the disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. Mm. So I think that's her way of saying what we were just saying, right? That, um, you know, just this shifting um, view that we have internally. See, what I think Joan Didion talked about, a lot of books on grief are about the not just the stages, but the feelings that you're going to go through. She really talks about her shifting phantasmagoria. Mm. And I think one of the interesting things about it is that she very much described grief as a state of temporary insanity. Mm. And I've often said that to people because it feels so crazy. Mm. And she really normalizes it. She describes her awareness of having irrational behavior. Um, and she, this is the point. She rejects the idea that grief is simply intense. She right. felt delusional. She had reduced functioning. She was shaken to the core. And so yeah. I thought that was really, really interesting. So grief as a state of temporary insanity and mental illness. because, And she talked about magical thinking. And what we could talk about later on, the vortex effect, those two things made her feel deranged and delusional. So what is the vortex effect? The vortex effect is kind of the other thing that you were saying about the memories. Um, Because I often describe grief as accepting the reality of the loss over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And everywhere you turn, either internally or externally, there are memories. There are signs that tell you, oh! Oh my God, he's gone. Could it be that he's gone? It's true that he's gone. And every time you, you see the thought, you know, the, the, the trigger, that's the vortex, right? Is it the triggers? Um, she calls it the vortex effect. So every time you see the triggers, either internal or external, it's a hit of reality. Right. And so, so what do you say yeah. to clients? And I just want to get your professional opinion on this too. Yeah. What do you, so I'm a client that comes to you and I've just lost my partner my life partner, um, and I'm telling you that I'm having this, these triggers from a vortex effect. What are, what are things that you would tell me on how to kind of cope with that? Well, first I would tell you, I would normalize it, and I will tell you this is the way you're working to accept the reality of the loss over and over again. And, and every time we come closer to accepting the reality, the more closer we come to healing. Mm. So I tell them that even though it hurts every time, you have that vortex effect and you have all those memories and triggers and things like that. It's Mm -hmm. also helping you heal because it's helping you accept the reality. What I have noticed with, with all of us is that over time, maybe it takes a year, maybe it takes longer, maybe it takes less for some people, but at a certain point you turn around and you say, Oh my God, it's really true. It Mm -hmm. really is true. He's never coming back. And even though all along the way, every one of those vortex effects, every one of those triggers was telling you the little things add up. And there seems to be a certain point where somebody says it's really true. And then they begin to turn. So instead of grief being in their face every single minute with the vortex effects every single second, they begin to turn. And the more they accept it, they turn towards their own life more and they begin to make Mm -hmm. changes. So something that Joan said, um, that I thought was very interesting kind of speaking to that kind of acceptance of the reality is 
she says, I, I know why we keep, I know why we try to keep the dead alive. We try to keep them alive in order to keep them with us. I also know that if we are to live ourselves, there comes a point at which we must relinquish the dead, let them go, keep right. them dead. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But that's a, that's a practice. You know what I mean? That's a practice. It's a it's, process and a practice. It's a, pro- right. it's a process and a practice. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. But it's not, it's not, in, it's not um, necessarily instinctual always, you know what I mean? To, to let go in that way. It can, it's I don't not think always that you actually do let go. I agree with you, actually. I don't think that during this process where the vortex effect and all the triggers are happening, that you're consciously being aware of letting go. I don't think that actually happens until later in a way. Because in the beginning, grief is right here. What if it right never here. happens? What about for well, people where it's where it doesn't seem to? Because Joan also talks about in the book the kind of clinical diagnosis of grief and then complicated grief, yes, right? Yes, she does. Yeah. So, what if it's not happening? What if there's someone out here that's listening and saying it's not happening? That that it not being in my face isn't happening, right? It's always in my face, or it's been in my face for yes. five years, or it's been in my face for twenty years, like. What do we say to the, to those folks? I mean, what's... I think that's the time that somebody really should consider um, getting some therapy around, some mm. grief counseling around this, some grief therapy, I should say. Because grief counseling is more of an educational process and you learn about grief and you understand the process of how it works. But grief therapy is the understanding of how you as an individual are going through this loss and what are the factors, both in the present and your history, that would um, affect the way you view the loss. Because there's what happens and there's the way you view it. And sometimes because of our own history and our own makeup, we have a certain way of viewing it that can that can uh, make it very difficult to come to that place of letting go. So. It's really hard to accept the terrible unfairness of life. Mm-hmm. You know Amen. what I mean? And the fragility. It's, sister. it's really, yeah. it's, and life is more unfair to some people than it is to others. And it yes. is so fucking tragic that that is yeah. the case, you know? That and I think when it happens, it's so hard to like, because also, at least in this country and to an extent for many people, there's this kind of like from an early age idealization of how things are supposed to work. And mm-hmm. then if something doesn't work, then it comes back around, you know, something else comes back around or it all evens out or there's karma or there's god or there's uh, somebody who is somehow looking out to make sure that these scales even out and sometimes they don't you know mm-hmm. sometimes they you don't. lose your kid and nothing ever like can balance the scale to even it out and i, I agree with you say what you're saying is because what you're saying is that sometimes it's just too fucking much yeah it's but then, just and too I'm, much just, and there's no way no matter how many therapists no matter what you do no matter how much you understand you just can't get out from under it it's all just too much i wonder for i think that the biggest i think the best chance that people like who feel that way that they have for healing i think and i could be wrong and please if you are someone out there who's listening that is having this experience forgive me ahead of time for speaking for you but um is just some semblance of an understanding and acceptance of this feeling, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, another reason why I like this book is just a, a, like a reminder that like your situation, whatever's happened to you and whatever, you, however you're feeling as a result of that terribly unfair or tragic or traumatic situation, like it's, it's reasonable. Other people feel that way. There's, you know, mm-hmm. if you're having a delusion based on like not wanting to give someone's shoes away because they might need them even after they're dead, you're not alone in that. And not mm-hmm. that it will ever bring the person back, not that we'll ever like write the scales, but at least you're not alone because that can be the other kind of piece. I think that just is like sometimes the the straw, you know, of course, but- it brings up the importance of why sometimes finding a way to gather with other people who have gone yeah. through the loss. I have recently started a group of young widows whose husbands died suddenly similar to Joan and who have kids. And it's a powerful, I'm always in awe of groups and the process that happens, the synergy that happens. But we were actually talking about this where grief can become chronic and, and what that's about and how would you get through that? Because somebody knew somebody that had 
knew somebody that had chronic grief that where it didn't go away after five years. And some of the other people in the group said, but what, I don't want it to go on for, I don't want to feel this way in five years. I want to feel better. You know? I think a lot of people so we talked about know better it. about this than I would. I think that for a lot of people, there can be, especially when the losses, I would assume of a child, I think that might be mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the case almost the worst, is that getting better, there might be a guilt attached to feeling better. Of course. Absolutely. So yeah. well said. Absolutely. But here's what they thought about. This is what they came up with. Okay. They came up with the concept of trying to be in any moment during the day and how it's just to mitigate just a little bit the depth of despair to let the sun shine on your face, mm. you know, just for the moment, even if it's just a little moment. You know, we talk about pearls. So yeah. this was what these these beautiful women were thinking about and came up with just that, you know, that's that's the way towards life, because as we know, grief is a dual process of grieving and processing the loss and moving ahead and trying to be in life. It's going on at the same time. So if we can allow those those little moments, little teeny moments of life in. And so often I think those moments, you know, do relate to food. And even, you know, Joan talks about it in the book. And when she was in L.A., when Quintana was in the hospital in Los Angeles, you know, we mentioned the Huevos Rancheros and she'd look forward to everyone going to dinner with friends every night. And she would talk mm-hmm. about how that was important. A lot of times those little tiny glimmers mm-hmm. of joy, you know, it could be a, a handful of cashews. It could be an ice cream sundae. It could be, you know, whatever. But so many of those, I know for me, like some of those little ways after dad died, um, were about food. Like, you know, so when my dad passed away, it was a bad chain of events. He died. I had been, I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but I had been dating someone and like staying with them. I had given up my apartment. We were going to move in together and they broke up with me like two weeks after dad died. So then I had to stay with you for a couple of months and I was just so far away from any semblance of my life and my kind of joys. And I remember one of the first times that I allowed joy back in was when I moved into my current apartment that I live in now. And I went to the farmer's market for the first time, which is something that I really enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. And I like got stuff and I brought it home and I put it in my fridge. And it was just like a little bit of a glimmer into like what life used to be like and some of the things that made me happy. And it wasn't like, oh, I went to the farmer's market and I'm healed. But it was like a little crack where like some light could get in. And I was like, maybe I'll let some more light in and I'll go back to the Mm -hmm. farmer's market. next. Maybe I'll cook something with the stuff Mm -hmm. that I bought next week instead of just letting it sit in the fridge. Like little steps in life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, little steps in life. Yeah. So we're talking about you know the vortex effect that she speaks of, and we're talking about the memories. And I always find this interesting when people talk about it's very hard for me to go back to the things we did together. Mm, yeah. Right? They say, I, "How could I possibly go to the restaurant where we ate, or possibly how could I even eat the food that we ate, or go to the farmers market, or do any of the things that we used to do together?" And I've mentioned before that my business name is Bittersweet, and I love that word, and I love Bittersweet. Yeah, I see it in the woods when I walk. And it, it's just that fact that if we keep avoiding the things, that those memories that we share together, even though it hurts so much in the beginning and it's so, so bitter, I can't imagine a life without those things. Mm. Because eventually the hope, the hope is that at least some of them you'll be able to do in the future and say, well, we used to do this together. And I remember the smile on his face when he, when we did this. I remember the joke he told when we did this. And it can bring life back into your heart, you know. Yeah. It can bring light into your heart. Absolutely. So, bittersweet. Yeah. One other thing I really, uh, that Joan Didion repeats a lot. She talks about when they moved houses, she looks at the back of a painting and a friend who they had had staying with them for a while had written on the back of a painting. She doesn't say who it is. For some reason in my mind, I think it's Warren Beatty, but who knows? That's just (laughs) complete speculation. But, um, written on the back of the painting said, why do you always have to rewrite? Or you don't always have to be right. And then so right. she repeats often in the in the book, why do you always have to be right? Why do you always have to have the last word? For once in your life, just let it go. Mm. And I don't think any, obviously nothing she's written in this book happens by accident. And I made the correlation whether or not this was her intention in writing it of having an idea of how grief was supposed to go. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's supposed to look like this and like this and like this. And you're supposed to be right, you know. And 
what happened to her, the series of events between her husband dying and, uh, you know, eventually her daughter dying shortly thereafter is such an unexpected twist. And I love the thought of reminding yourself that you don't have to, whether or not, again, this was her intention in writing this, this is my interpretation of it, but um, reminding yourself that there isn't, isn't a right here and it doesn't matter. And you don't have to be, you know, correct in the way you thought you were supposed to grieve. It doesn't have to look a special way. If you're trapped in a little bit of a cycle of thinking things that are quote unquote crazy or magical or whatever, like that's fine. I don't know. It seemed like, um, it seemed like a, a statement of self-compassion to me. And yeah, it sounds like self-flagellation at first. Like you don't always have to be right. Why do you always do this? But right, it actually right. no, to yeah. me seems like, um, a permission. A real permission, yeah. Well, you know, she actually makes a point when she talks about grief being as a state of temporary insanity. She also discusses the pathologizing of grief in American culture, and I thought Mm. that was really important. She she has, quote, the question of self-pity, end of quote. And so at first when I read that, I didn't really know what it meant until later on in the book. What she means is that America sees grief as a form of self-indulgence, as self-pity, as wallowing. Mm. as an act of weakness and self-involvement that goes against the American ideals of independence and self-reliance and stoicism. Well, yeah. Yeah. And she discusses the behaviors that are expected from a person dealing with great loss, you know, in society. In other words, she said that grief used to be in our homes, and all of a sudden then it went into the hospitals or into Mm -hmm. the funeral homes and things like that. And she said there's social convention that dictates certain behaviors when you're in the hospital like some you're not supposed to yell and scream and fall on the floor and pet you're supposed to be you know even though you just heard that your husband just Absolutely, died yeah you're, you're supposed to say okay you know everybody's quiet cool and customer sh- yeah exactly so i thought that the question of self-pity again i think she says things and it's a self-compassion that's another yeah. way of a self-compassion i wonder comment. i mean i i attribute this you know our americanization our sterilization of the grieving process um I tie it as most perils in this country to capitalism, but I think that there's an element of, and this is just a quick kind of connection that I'm making, but I think it kind of makes sense of the American ideal of like needing to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and not waste any time because time is money. You know what I mean? Like you have to get back to work because Mm -hmm. you have to make money because money is the most important thing because this is a capitalistic country. And so Mm -hmm. In that, you lose the ability to be like, well, what if I need to lay on the floor for a month? Well, you can't. We can't do that. You can't act wild because if you act wild, people are going to think ill of you and you won't be a professional. You won't have money. You know what I mean? Right. I think in right. a way it all ties into, honestly, to capital. I mean, you can link most most <laughs> evils in this world to capitalism. But I do think that actually, I, I think it's an interesting thing to explore more because, you know, there is no grief leave. There is no leave for anything. There is no paid right. time off for anything. There's no, right. you know what I mean? There's no maternity leave. There's no time for people in this country to realistically process to any emotion. <laughs> human experience, right? right. Exactly. To even have off enough time mm-hmm. to spend with your family. Because the whole goal is mm-hmm. to keep work, 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 working. So you have money until you die and you can't appreciate it. And when you do die, no one should get too upset about it. Because they have to get back to work. It's well, it reminds me of Michael Moore's, you know, Where Do We Invade Next? I love that mm-hmm. movie because yeah. it really explores all different countries around the world and how they have much more honor, the human condition, including mm-hmm. having leisure time. You know, and that that's important. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because and of the course, ideal, honoring. Because yeah. the bar isn't set at billionaire. Right. The bar yeah, isn't set a, at billionaire. That's a really good point. You know what um, I mean? You know, again, you know, the thing with this book, I think, it, it is, it's self-compassionate. Um, and that's really her purpose because she felt crazy and she realized that that was just what happens when something so horrific happens in your life, when something is taken from you. You know, I love the concept bereavement means the Greek derivative is to be robbed. When something mm. is robbed mm. from you, I didn't realize no that. control. The, yeah, there's so no control. Say that again. Bereavement, well, the, the Greek, Greek derivative, derivative of bereavement is to is be to robbed. Be robbed. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. It says Isn't it so well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I know in my life, you know, I've I've had loss, but I'm not just referring to loss. I'm referring to even just frustration. Sometimes in my mind, I'm saying the craziest things. I feel resentful. I feel jealous. I feel envious. I feel bitter. I feel 
I mean, I mean, I go through. I haven't even had the traumas that we're talking about. So well, what happens about, when we have a trauma? And I just right. want to make this point. Yeah, no, that, please. You know, we have a lot of thoughts in our mind that we're scared of when we have mm. uh, trauma. You know, it's yeah. scary. It's scary inside our heads. So I think she just gives you permission that that's all okay and that that's what it's supposed to be and it's part of the process. Well, to your point, what I was going to say is that I want to. I think we should talk about the word crazy. Right. Because also the word crazy has a very negative connotation to it. It's it's Mm -hmm. terrible stigma surrounding it. We call people who we don't understand or might have mental illness crazy. Uh, Actually, my, you know, our family friend, but my very good friend, Dan, uh, they are always kind of enlightening me about kind of different ways to approach uh, language. And uh, they have recently talked to me about trying not to use the word crazy. Like, and it's something we throw around so often, like, oh my God, that's crazy. Can you believe that's so crazy? And they say wild now. And I've started to try to not say crazy. And I'm not saying we shouldn't say it here, but even just to destigmatize in terms of talking about grief, we've been saying the word crazy a lot, uh, that it's like, if we are going to use the word crazy, let's talk about crazy as being not a negative. You know what I mean? Exactly. As crazy being a state of... Like, let's create a, a time, a, an area of self-acceptance around crazy, you know, as though it's not something to run from, but it's just a state you can be in. It's just another way of feeling and it doesn't have to be so negative. Exactly. Which makes us also look at the word normal and be able to expand, mm. expand and expand what's normal. Particularly so could we then in say response. crazy is normal? <laughs> it's normal to be crazy. Right. That's right. That's right. And crazy is normal when you're when you're grieving, and wild yeah. is crazy when you're grieving. Yeah, but I like that. I think it's an interesting kind of thing to think mm-hmm. about. Yes, and not not to not say it necessarily. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that anyone should or shouldn't say it. I'm not saying, oh, now you've heard it here in processing. We don't say crazy. Change anymore. the parameters. But but yeah, like change the connotation around it. Yes, you know, to just mm-hmm. there's something about the word crazy that is evocative of like a woman on the edge. You know what I mean? Or like really like actually have you ever seen that john cassavetti's movie a woman under the influence i haven't seen it in a long time and i think about um i think about that and just kind of like you know as though that's a negative it's just a per it's just in a state of being that is uh for whatever reason a bit untethered or a bit or maybe just more tethered or more authentic you know who's to say that the the normal state is this watered down, washed down, you know, kind of, uh, puritanical, sanitized. yeah, sanitized. sanitized version of living. Maybe crazy is the authentic, maybe the sanitized version that we do every day. Maybe that's crazy. You know, well, you know, what's so interesting. One of the most wonderful parts about being a therapist is that when people really unpack and I'll say we, because I do it too, when we mm. unpack what crazy quote unquote felt like, mm. it's really just human. It's yeah. just when we don't get to unpack exactly. it, and we don't when we don't get to um, f- uh, feel validated validated in it, we feel like we're crazy. But it's not. Yeah. It's just normal human condition, and that's again what Joan Didion did. She expanded that so much yeah. to say there's so much going on, and it's so wild. I, it's a it's a great word. It's wild. Yeah. In there, you know, you know. Yeah. Again, you talked about the feelings in the sea being wild. She talks Mm. about some of the thoughts in our head being wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really, it's, it's really, really interesting. I also, you know, one more kind of food thing in the book that I love is just so beautiful when she talks about the very thought of food made her feel like she got home and didn't, couldn't remember what they had been eating dinner. She was preparing something. She couldn't remember what it was. Got home and then for weeks after, the very thought of food made her feel sick and immediately want to throw up, except for congee. And she had a friend who would go down to Chinatown and get and bring her congee. So, Zara, could you tell our listeners what congee is? Yeah, so congee is uh, like a delicious Chinese rice porridge. Mm. And I actually feel like I, I haven't had it in so long. <laughs> I might make it for dinner tonight, to be honest. It's so delicious. It's just like rice that's been cooked down for a really long time till it's like the consistency of porridge and it has all different kinds of things that you can either top it with or put into it and it's soft and warm and I can really understand why it would be something that would feel comforting to eat 
as a first. Could we kind have of it thing. for our feast today? Yes, I think that's what we need to have. Oh my god, a delicious! Um, do you have you had kanji? I've never had it, and I hope that you'll make it for me sometime. But I'd like to have it today for our feast because I feel like talking about this book today. I feel mm. like we traveled in this wild world. Mm. You know, yeah. I really do. It's just so deep. Um, so let's have kanji. What should we put on it in it? So you're making this rice porridge, and what are you going to put? So I like to put on it um, either like some. Uh, like shredded chicken usually is a kind of nice thing with, I mean, I know you don't eat ginger, but let's just say you did. But so like a gingery chick, I always put lots of ginger in the rice and then some kind of like delicious gingery chicken. I put a, like a lot of accout- like different accoutrements. So um, lao gong ma, which is like a Chinese crunchy soy chili paste. I like a little bit of that on there. Scallions, cilantro, you really like, I mean, you could put anything, but that's kind of my go-to. Like soy, like a vinegary soy kind of drizzle over the peanuts. Mm. Yeah, I love it. But you can, I mean, top it with really anything. So, and I'll make a salad. Okay. I'm going to make a salad that um, we're going to have to get some sprouts from our friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> from exactly. our sprout men. And then I make a really good dressing. And it just has um, rice wine vinegar, um, sunflower oil, and... Um, soy sauce and it's a really oh, simple yeah. dressing it's a really and i keep it in the refrigerator so we'll have a salad that has uh wonderful i'd like some steamed vegetables like some steamed broccoli and some steamed Ooh. string beans and some Yum. steamed carrots and scallions but and cold like steamed and then cold, cold. yeah cold Ooh, a steamed yeah. vegetable salad how delicious okay yes that sounds wonderful some asparagus because they're looking good right now and mm. Yeah. Lots of scallions and and I'll make some uh, toasted garlic where you slice it really thin and then put it in oil and and fry them. You make little toasted garlic chips. Crunchy fried garlic. Yum, yum, yum. That sounds so good. All right. Ooh, that sounds great. Well, this was a really beautiful episode. And I I wanted to ask, actually, just ask you before we leave like, do you recommend this book to clients? Yes. You do. I do, but clients need different things at different times. Of course, of um, course. When, when are, do you re- recommend this book to somebody, right? Uh, I mean, well, is me there a standard for that? There's different people that respond to different things. Mm-hmm. I think people that like to read would really like this. Some people are have a really hard time reading after they have a loss. Most people mm-hmm. do, actually. It's very hard to read. And they need more factual things. You know, they, yeah. they're better off with topics and headings and, you know, that kind of thing. Because they're looking for a how-to yeah, I just want to recommend though. Also, the audiobook version of this is great. I've read, the, I own the book. I've read the book a couple times, um, but I also just uh, listened to the audiobook version. Who of reads it. it? I can't remember. Someone with a beautiful, mm. beautiful voice. But um, yeah, it's a really, it's really a great audiobook listen. Because yeah, you're right. Mm. Reading can be difficult. Yes. But I'm a big audiobook person. I'm a huge proponent of audiobooks and I feel I have a complex relationship with that statement because I love (laughs) books you know I love reading I love books I own a ton of books um I'm a book enthusiast through and through but I do also think that it's very nice that we have the option of being able to digest books uh either important books or just for fun while we're doing other things because you know we're some of us are busy or if you're driving how nice to be able to like absorb a book i don't know if you can say read it but listen well to i always book. think that um I, lo- I love stories where you know parents will go through an entire book with children read from beginning to end where i knew these two lovers who uh, one was in france and one was in the united states and the way they continued in their relationships every night they read it, novels to each other yeah. long old historical novels it's just so mm. beautiful so it's a beautiful thing to to be read to right yeah it's it's beautiful. nice i i like the audio yeah. thing but yeah i was i read this book um i guess a year after dad died and you're right you have to be ready for things and it's also an interesting kind of thing about human nature how sometimes when someone tells you you must read this or you must go to this restaurant you must watch this thing you don't want to so Maybe it's something that maybe you're listening to this and you're just going to decide to come upon it when you're ready for it. But I really would recommend it, not only because of how it normalizes grief, but um, just how it normalizes the human experience and is a really just honest look at what it feels like to grieve without much suggestion. It's not that she's telling Mm, you to do this or that. 
It's not that she's saying like this or that is wrong. It's a really honest, a very honest observation of what it is. That's her experience. Yeah. Yeah. An observation. She's almost like, it's almost like clinical. Like today I uh, did this thing and I felt this, you know, and it's not like I I should or shouldn't. There's not some kind of point that needs to be driven home of like, okay, reader. And not much judgment. I agree. Not much judgment and not much like, well, like here's my opinion for how I, or why I wrote the book. You know, I think it did end up being such a, a useful tool in uh in the grief community, but I don't think that she necessarily even wrote it with that intention. I think she just right. needed to write it. It's just an observation. It's like almost a scientific right. observation of grief, which mm-hmm. as I kind of was touching on before, I feel like that Joan Didion is that type of writer. She has a very scientific mind. She's numbers oriented in some certain ways. She's very specific in that way in her writing. And I think that's why the book is useful because it's not self-help. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, not, exactly. it's, it's mm-hmm. like you can come to it on your own and take with it from it what you want to. And it's not really pushing any kind of agenda down your throat, which I think is very cool, especially in the kind of grief reading, right? Like, do you know any mm-hmm. other books that are really like that? That's I think why it's so unique. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But Joan Didion as a woman and as a writer is cat-like in that way. You know what I mean? She reminds me a lot of my best friend, Becky. Um, and just the like, you know, I don't know, those kind of people are so special and often such good teachers because they're just, you can come to them. They're not trying to like, you know what I mean? Push, but there's wisdom there and you almost are drawn to it. It's really mm. special. Mm. This was a great episode. Enjoyed very, it very much. Very interesting. And I've wanted to discuss this book for a while and for anyone listening out there, we'd love to hear your interpretation and relationship of uh, this book. So if you want to write us an email and tell us what you think or send us a message at processing podcast uh, on Instagram, uh, processing underscore podcast on Instagram, we would love to love to hear our processing at heritage radio network dot org. Yeah. And please tell us your stories, write us your letters, uh, join us on the podcast. We would really love to hear what you're going through. Yes. And also, uh, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. That way, that that's how we grow the show. That's how more people can kind of join this community, which we think is really important. And thank you so much all for listening. And we are so grateful for your support. And we love you. And take care of yourselves and each other. Love you. Love you, Zaz. Love you, too. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Dot org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter 
at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.